Welcome back to Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yolchi Driesen, back with Jen Williams, who is off her deathbed. Thank God. Yeah, well, we didn't all get a vacation last week. Yolchi. Ouch. <laughs> and Yolchi is back from vacation. No response to that one. And hey, Zach. Hi, I'm Zach Beecham. So we get to launch into one of my favorite games, which is Pick the Trump. This was a week where we had Trump talking about Afghanistan, about a war that is going on forever, a war that candidate Trump, I think, was actually personally right about. And I think President Trump has now been wrong about, which we'll get into in a little bit. But let's hear first candidate Trump talk about Afghanistan. So we're on track now to spend, listen to this, $6 trillion, $6 trillion. Could have rebuilt our country twice, all together on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East. Meanwhile, massive portions of our country are in a state of total disrepair. It's time to rebuild America. So there you had candidate Trump saying basically part of the America first, let's not be on the world stage, let's not be involved in too many wars. That was candidate Trump. This week, in talking about Afghanistan, we had President Trump. The vacuum we created by leaving too soon gave safe haven for ISIS to spread, to grow, recruit, and launch attacks. We cannot repeat in Afghanistan the mistake our leaders made in Iraq. So there's a whole lot to unpack there. We have the transition from Candidate Trump, who's a non-interventionist, to President Trump, who suddenly is, and not just in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq, in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, which we can get into in a little bit. But we also have, and I'd like to start here, this question about Afghanistan. I mean, this is the longest war in American history. It is continuing, just churning on and on and on and on. Trump has not said how many more troops he will send, but he has said he will send more, which means more Americans will fight, more Americans will die. And I think where, where I'd kind of like to start is, for what purpose? Is there any reason whatsoever to think that after 16 years where there have been at times more troops, you know, Jen, I know you've been looking at troop numbers, but is there a reason to think this could turn it when previous much larger numbers of troops didn't? Uh, no, I think is probably the short answer. So basically, we don't know actually like what the troop numbers are going to be. So he didn't really announce that in his speech, but most reporting suggests it's going to be around 4,000, maybe 3,800. And so that's on top of the, the troops that we already have there. So right now, we the Pentagon publicly acknowledges that we have uh, 8,400. The Wall Street Journal just recently reported that if you put together uh, all the, the troops who were there on like temporary assignment, which doesn't get counted in the, uh, the force management level, which... Uh, the acronym is FML. So if you want to talk about troop numbers, it's definitely FML. Um, so the total would be 12,000. So that includes soft special operations forces, um, temporary assignments, so people who kind of go in and out but aren't, you know, formally there. Um, so so that's already there, right? That's 12,000. So if we add another 4,000 troops, that's not a massive surge. We're not talking the kind of huge surge that Obama did so at the, at the peak of the war in Afghanistan, we had 100,000 U.S. troops. And that's U.S. troops. That's not counting also NATO allies. We have a lot of NATO countries um, have troops uh, in Afghanistan as well. So, yeah. So, I mean, even during, you know, the surge phase, like Afghanistan got better, right? Things were kind of more stable somewhat. But we still had the same 
kind of challenges, and we can get into that. So the political challenges, the you know the issues with training the Afghan national um, security forces, and things like that. So most experts, and I tend to agree, think that four thousand troops additional isn't going to really do much in terms of a long term solution. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up experts, Jen, because I spent a lot of time before this episode just reading what various different Afghanistan experts have to say about this strategy. And the issue that you get, first of all, they all, as Jen just said, they all basically agree that the speech didn't announce a viable new policy. And the reason why it goes deeper than just troop numbers, it's about objectives, right? It's about what this is intended to accomplish and what's a change from past failed approaches, right? We all can see very clearly that in the past few years after Obama surged troops into Afghanistan and then started to draw down, there was no significant gain by the Afghan forces that was sustained over the course of time. The Taliban has recently especially been able to retake more and more territory. ISIS actually has not established much of a foothold there. It's weak. That's for different reasons. It's not really because of a great and really smart U.S. strategy. It's just they're kind of poorly positioned relative to the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But the basic point here is that you have the same strategy, which is supporting the Afghan government, right, and giving its military a bunch of money and aid and hoping, 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 hoping that this will eventually be able to repair the country somehow, develop a sustained and established political order out of Kabul. Sending more troops isn't just going to do that, right? You need some kind of more sophisticated approach. And Trump's strategy was just do what we're doing now, plus more troops and maybe killing some more people. Well, there's actually, though, um, a half that you left off, which is important. I mean, the U.S. strategy for going on nine years now has basically been twofold. One, as you say, is kind of build up the Afghan government and the Afghan military. But the other half, which is, I think, even more important strategically and where the failure has been a lot more apparent is get the Taliban to negotiate. The stated U.S. strategy has been hammer the Taliban hard enough that they'll come to the negotiating table. Problem is, the Taliban have not only never been defeated, and not only have they never gone away, but they control more land than ever before. They have no incentive to negotiate. When Obama announced the surge, and this is something that Donald Trump pointed out in his speech correctly, I was covering this pretty intensively at the time, and Obama, when he announced it, because he was sort of torn between wanting to send more troops, but also not wanting to have the war go on forever, announced the surge, and also simultaneously said they will all come back within 18 months. This was a decision that was condemned not just, I mean, to me directly, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats, former military, current military people hated the idea that you were telling the Taliban, hey, these guys will all leave in 18 months. Because basically the Taliban hear that as, okay, we'll wait them out. And I think if the negotiation, the hope that you can negotiate a deal, that at some point the Taliban will negotiate, you have to at some point get to the point and the question of what's their incentive to talk? And if they feel like they're winning, and they are, why would they talk? Why would this part of the strategy work when it has never worked before? And I think it's important to kind of talk about what Trump laid out as the strategy and and what he kind of purposely said that we were leaving out and whether or not that makes any sense whatsoever for Afghanistan. So he, he explicitly said, we're not doing nation building anymore, right? That's, you know, well and good to say, but that that's not just something that we did for funsies. It's part of the political you know, the broader solution for how to figure out how to deal with Afghanistan. So, you know, when I was kind of reviewing the literature and and going over stuff in preparation for today's episode, you know, I started thinking about, so so why would someone in Afghanistan support the Taliban, right? Like, why would someone 
you know, they have 40%, like you said, Zach, 40% of, of either complete control or significant influence in Afghanistan now. That's a huge chunk of territory. Afghanistan's a large place, too. Um, and I think in that territory, it, it includes basically one-third of the population. So that's a lot of people who support the Taliban. So if you're an American, you know, we know the Taliban as the guys who sheltered bin Laden and, you know, let them carry out 9-11 from there and as evil, horrible, you know, keeping women in the house and, you know, all this kind of awful stuff that we saw, you know, during during the war, which is still going on, but during the initial, you know, invasion. And that's true, right? Those are all true things that, that the Taliban, you know, they are that. But there's also the fact that when you're talking about Afghanistan, we're talking about the central government. If you're living in rural Afghanistan that is way, way far away from the central government, the central government has basically zero influence on your life. It can, you know, say it's going to do all these things, but when it gets down to the local level, there's like no control. And there's also massive, massive, massive corruption. So no rule of law. So government officials committing murders and crimes and rapes and basically getting off scot-free. Whereas you have— Which was the Afghan politician who raped a political rival? Like, that actually uh, happened. That's the vice president? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then he fled uh, the country for a while uh, because he was being accused of having raped his political opponent. And then he came back— uh, And And they wouldn't let him in. Well, but also the U.S.-backed government has basically said, we're not going to prosecute you. Right, right. So that's the kind of thing that if you're a a local, you know, Afghan living in Paktika, Helmand, right, and you see, like— there's a murder happening or, you know, my neighbor just stole something and, you know, or these government officials are incredibly corrupt. There's no justice. There's nothing like rule of law. The Taliban brings that. Now, it's a, you know, a horrifically brutal kind of form of justice, but it's a form of justice, right? It's not the form of justice we would prefer that they enact, but they handle shit. Basically, there are cases where people have complained about a local official and the Taliban was like, fine, you're fired. That, that guy's gone now. They have, you know, courts and they have judges that issue rulings and they kill someone who did something or they cut off your hand if you did something. So that's one thing. That's one reason. The other is that, like like you said, Yochi, they're there. They're always going to be there. And if you're an Afghan and you've seen, you know, the Russians come and go and you've seen the Americans come and stay— there's no kind of trust that we're going to be there forever and that they should trust in the, you know, the U.S.-backed government. So it's like, okay, well, the Taliban is probably always going to be here, so I might as well throw my lot in because if I don't and then the Americans leave, then the Taliban's back and I'm screwed. Yeah, it's not just trust. Um, so there's this professor at Yale, Jason Leal, who's done a lot of field work in Afghanistan, and he also designed a really impressive survey of men who live in Taliban-controlled regions. And asked them, with, with a, along with a couple of other professors, to evaluate how they saw civilian casualties in military actions when the U.S. or the U.S.-led coalition kills Afghan civilians versus when the Taliban kills Afghan civilians. And it turns out, interestingly, that after the U.S. kills a civilian, support for the Taliban goes up among these men. But when the Taliban kills civilians or civilians in a high-profile strike— there is an increased support for the United States among these populations or for the ANSAF forces. And the reason that they that their research suggests for this result 
is that they see things differently when it's local actors doing something. When it's people who are part of your own country, this isn't just an Afghanistan thing. It's in most places. Uh, you view their actions differently. You see them more comprehensively than a foreign occupier, invader, even if they have the best of intentions. And I think Americans don't fully understand that foreign occupiers – I mean we don't have very much experience with being occupied by a foreign country. We're not used to seeing ourselves through the eyes of others and seeing how our presence could be seen as someone else imposing their will on you. And it, it also speaks to another worrying part of the Trump strategy – which is that he said that he would loosen restrictions on the use of force inside Afghanistan in his speech. That is was not especially clear, but those restrictions are almost always designed to prevent civilian casualties. So basically, it seems like Trump is amending the strategy to allow more civilians to die, which seems more likely to increase support for the Taliban. And, and I don't think that will offset any military gains that you get from from loosening up those rules, right? So we we uh, like to use the phrase "hot take," and that that was that that ended hot. Uh, I would disagree a bit. So I used to live in Afghanistan, and uh, both in Kabul, and I spent a lot of time embedded with U.S. troops in both the south and the east, which are the parts that are uh, under Taliban control effectively. And th there are two things that have always stuck with me since. One is in Kabul, the Russians remain popular. We think of the Russians having been this hated force of the Afghans with American support booted out for one reason. The infrastructure of Kabul that still functions, the highways that are still drivable, the roads that are still drivable, the hospital buildings, were all built by the Russians almost 30 years ago. The stuff the U.S. has built with huge amounts of money are crumbling. Part of that is corruption. Part of it is that the U.S. doesn't know how to oversee projects. But to the Afghans of Kabul, they look at what the Russians built and are like, hey, that still functions. That was pretty good. Those were the days. And they look back at what we've built even in the last five years, and, and it's, it's crumbling. But what's interesting about being in this, the East and the South, and it, Jen, it plays off a point you made. The Afghan central government is something that's totally almost non-existent. Right. Afghanistan is so remote that I would be sometimes in parts, especially the East, where people I would be meeting with as part of these combat embeds had not only never been to Kabul, they never left that valley. So the idea that there was a government, they hadn't even heard of it. Kabul to them might as well have been Washington for as much knowledge as they had of it. And there would be polling done, and the U.S. would routinely point to this polling, where they would say, First of all, polls in Afghanistan are, are nuts because most people don't have phones, so you're not going to get people who don't live in the cities oftentimes. But the polling data would be, do you like the Taliban? The answer would be no. And then the U.S. would say, aha, we're going to win because hearts and minds are not with the Taliban. But then when you would disaggregate it and you say, do you believe Islamic law should hold? Yes. Do you believe that corruption should be punished? Yes. Do you believe that religious figures can more fairly arbitrate disputes? Yes. All of which is say the things that the Taliban actually does they have shadow courts, they have shadow governors, they have their own postal system, their own tax system. Those things were actually very popular. The amount of money lost in corruption in Afghanistan is beyond comprehension. We're talking tens of billions of dollars of cash gone. If you're in Dubai, one of the wealthiest, most expensive cities in the world, there's a neighborhood called Little Kabul, mansions built by Afghan government ministers whose salary is $30,000 a year, who live in $10 million houses. And you know, Zach, I completely agree with a lot of what you were saying, that you can understand if you're an Afghan and what you see at the U.S. is either corruption or backing a government that you hate or airstrikes that are killing your family, it's understandable why you would think the Taliban is the better option of the two, even if it is deeply flawed. Right. And I think, you know, that goes back to, to the Trump strategy, right? So, you know, he's clearly said we're not doing nation building, which means a lot of the political institutions, and I'm not even talking about like building highways, we're talking like the political institution building, trying to get, you know, a functioning central government, which it there isn't 
and we've been there the worst now 16 years on. But he said, you know, we're explicitly we're not doing nation building. We're there to make basically for straight up U.S. national security interests to make sure that there is no safe haven for terrorists in the same way that there was, you know, leading up to 9-11. But again, that goes back to the fact that like there, I mean, most everyone you talk to, military experts, U.S. diplomats will say that there is no military solution to the problem of Afghanistan, to the conflict in Afghanistan. and. When you look at that, 4,000 troops, like, what what are they going to do? They're going to be on the ground doing what? Like, killing the Taliban? Okay, they can just continue to recruit, right? Like, it's not even clear what the mission is. And and Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, everyone's favorite, uh, Mr. Charisma. It's Mr. Charisma. There you go. Ah, Ken stole your line. I was, I was no. waiting for it. Um, Damn it, you beat me to a T-Rex. Mr. Charisma, the Rexit. All of those things will one day be saved. The Rexit. Oh, my God. So, anyway, Rex Tillerson, you know, said right after Trump gave his Afghanistan strategy uh, speech, the Taliban, you know, we may not win, but you won't win either. That sure is a great strategy, guys. Like, hey, we're going to fight you to a stalemate, which we're kind of already at. So, yay. And I think it's really important to point out, we've talked about this when we've talked previously about North Korea and the conflict there and trying to deal with that issue is the lack of ambassadors. So we don't have a U.S. ambassador to India. We don't have a U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. And the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan is an Obama incumbent. So if we're talking about those are three very important countries, and, and I definitely want us to get into Pakistan because I think that's a massive part of, of Trump's strategy, and he, and he pulled that out, specifically calling out Pakistan. I think it's important dynamic to understand here. But we don't even have the, like, diplomatic core in place to even carry out the basic, like, even just translating, like, what does an ambassador do? Like, telling the Pakistanis, telling the Indian government, telling the Afghans— like what our strategy is. We don't have someone who was appointed by Trump. We have people who are just kind of left over and are still sitting in the position. And that's just another kind of example of how there's no real strategy. You can call it a strategy. doesn't actually make it a strategy, right? It makes it kind of a half-assed decision that looks like I did something, but it's not really clear what the end goal is or if there is one. MeUndies are the best underwear on the planet. Need proof? Go to their site, look at pictures of people in their underwear. That's comfort. Then order a pair and feel for yourself because apparently it's National Underwear Month. Who knew? Once you put on MeUndies, you're going to want to wear them all the time because they are the world's most comfortable underwear. That's because MeUndies are made from lensing micromodal, a sustainably sourced, naturally soft fabric that's proven to be three times softer than cotton. Order a pair. If you don't love them, they're free. They've made it really easy for you, and there's literally no risk. So it's National Underwear Month. Time to try MeUndies risk-free, the world's most comfortable underwear. Buy them. Try them. If they're not for you, they're free. No money. So now until August 31st, get 20% off your first pair. You get free shipping. It is at MeUndies.com worldly. MeUndies.com worldly. MeUndies.com worldly. Have a happy National Underwear Month. In 2009, there was a robust debate over whether or not Obama's troop surge and shifting towards a more troop-heavy counterinsurgency strategy was a smart idea. And, like, really, there was a strong division. I've seen very little public sector 
that is to say non-classified, arguments in favor of continuing this war. I've seen very few experts come out and say, the U.S. can really make a difference. Have you we read Mike O'Hanlon at the Brookings Institution well, but lately? But actually, yeah, I mean, two, two very things. few. Yeah, but, no, but, two, but two things there. Like, the, only one. the sort of think tank conventional wisdom is we cannot pull out. So you may not see people enthusiastically saying we're going to win it, but but I disagree. I mean, most of the think tanks that I've written about Afghanistan, their basic mushy conventional wisdom is too dangerous to leave because ISIS will come. And, and so so we fight forever. Right. But, but Basically. I mean, that, but that's, which is profoundly flawed, but that is sort of the conventional wisdom. You, you don't hear people making the case to withdraw. And, you know, there's not an enthusiastic case to stay, but such as there is a case, it's too dangerous to leave. The 2009 debate was Obama at his worst. And I was covering that almost every day. And it was not a robust debate in the sense that what he never looked at was where it should have started, which is, what is our mission? Do we possibly have too many troops already? Should we pull out? Should we tweak? The only thing they debated, and they debated it for months, was how many more to send. That was it. Joe Biden was making the case that we are losing, it's not worth it, we should withdraw, but he was the only one. Every other member of the Obama War Council, all they argued about was how many more to send. We're, so, we're talking about different things, though. You're talking about internal Obama administration disagreements. I'm talking about public— No, no, no. I, we're talking about both because the, the two tracked. The, the, in 2009, while this was happening, because it went on for so long, you had think tank people who were weighing in from the outside, in part because they were trying to influence what was happening on the inside. And in both the public and private debates, the debates were, how many more do you send? There was no debate about, you should pull out, where you have too many, the mission is already too expansive. And the debate, one, the reason I say it was Obama at, its, at his worst was it went on forever. He asked, he framed it in a way that was, I think, intellectually dishonest. And the place he got to was, we're going to surge and withdraw simultaneously, which no one liked, neither the Pentagon nor, nor his cabinet, nor the Hill. And the military, Obama became, this became kind of a meme that Obama was at war with his own military and didn't trust his own generals. The reason for that dates back to Afghanistan, because he so wanted the mission to be narrow. He wanted to be counterterrorism the way that Trump now says he wants it to be as well. He did not want to be counterinsurgency. He wanted to be counterterrorism, the same phrase Trump uses. He gave actual written guidance to the military commanders. And this is in Bob Woodward's book, and it's fascinating because Woodward has a copy of it. But at the end of the debate, he gave them written things they wanted them to sign. Think about how nuts that is. This is the commander-in-chief not trusting the military to carry out his order to a degree they want them to sign a contract, basically, promising to carry it out, which said, among other things, the mission is counterterrorism. They all signed it. A week later, David Petraeus is up on the Hill, you know, was asked, is it counterinsurgency or counterterror? Less than a week after he signed a document saying it's counterterror, he said it's counterinsurgency. So you had the military not only not do what the president explicitly told them to do, they got into the cycle, you know, and Jen, you, you talked about the troop level of sending more and more and more troops which gets us to kind of an interesting question. This came up in Slack yesterday, which was generals know the cost of war. The Trump White House is basically run by generals. John Kelly, the new chief of staff, his son died in Afghanistan. H.R. McMaster has right. knowledge of Afghanistan. Jim Mattis, who's the new secretary of defense, has knowledge of Afghanistan. They all know the cost, but they're the ones pushing for more troops. And there is an interesting dynamic there. And it, someone asked this and phrased it themselves as, I'm going to ask a dumb question. It wasn't a dumb question. It was a great question. And I think that's really interesting. Why are the generals the ones pushing it? That's the point I was trying to get to there. Yeah, it's just, it just, it, I find it kind of infuriating, right? Given how little, eminently little sense the current strategy makes to me and continuing to fight forever, that the people who most know, as you say, most intimately know the cost of war are the people who are most pushing for it. And I, I, I struggle with what the answer might be. I have theories, but I don't, I, I'm really not sure. 
Yeah. So um, I, I definitely want to get into that point. I just want to make sure we clarify terms here. We, we kind of introduced two different ideas here, counterinsurgency versus counterterrorism. I'm, I'm not sure even maybe all of us are, are clear. So I just want to make sure that we kind of explain what those two different things are and why it's important that we say it's counterterrorism versus counterinsurgency. Yochi, do you want to just kind of lay that out? It just remind us. First of all, thank you so much for flagging that because even in saying the words myself, I was stumbling over them. So counterinsurgency is the idea that effectively to win, you need hearts and minds. Right. It's the idea that you can't have American troops living at big bases, bombing from the air. You have to have American troops living at small bases throughout the country. You have to have a situation where ordinary people see Americans living among them. They, They build relationships, that they see a lieutenant, a young captain, that the Americans are not just this diffuse thing relying solely on killing. It's the idea that Americans should also be out there building wells and schools and hospitals. And that's why you need so many troops. Right. And the point is to basically, right, to get the population to trust you in order to turn over the insurgents among them and to root them out so that the insurgency can't fester and can't survive, right? So it's it's a broader kind of like social, political kind of strategy rather than... Rather than option two. Option two. And option two is, I know something you've studied kind of academically as well as the work we're doing here, but option two basically is just kill terrorists. Right. And that, (laughs) it's interesting when you put that in the context of Afghanistan, because we talked about the Taliban, obviously we've talked about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The Taliban are not ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Right. The Taliban have never carried out an attack outside their own borders. You know, the Taliban in Pakistan carry out attacks in Pakistan, the Taliban in Afghanistan and Afghanistan, but the Taliban have never tried to attack the U.S. in New York or in Washington. Prior to 9-11, Taliban diplomats came to D.C. all the time. We had diplomatic relations with the Taliban. So they are not, to my mind, terrorists in the way that we think of terrorists. But counterterrorism basically is just kill a lot of them. Kill enough of them, they come to talk. Problem is, we've been trying that for nine years and it's never worked. But I'm glad you brought it up because the distinction matters. That distinction effectively is why troop levels can be different. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I think um, I just wanted to kind of clarify that. But I think getting back to the the broader question of like, you know, basically, like how how did we get here, right? Like going back to the the quotes that we introduced, you know, this segment with, what what happened with Trump? Why did he go from being this, you know, we need to get out, this is stupid, you know, this is ridiculous for spending all this money. I mean, even in his speech, he said something like, you know, my my impulse was to get out, was to pull out, but I guess we can just, you know, do this other thing or whatever. I mean, he wasn't like, this is a great idea. He wasn't really selling it. He's like, yeah, we don't want the terrorists to come back, I guess. I, you know, uh, I was talked into this. It's kind of how it sounded. So I was talked into this. I mean, <laughs> more or less, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's kind of how it came across. And I think the issue about, like, the generals is an interesting question because, again, it was Mattis. It was McMaster. Um And I think to some degree, reporting suggests that John Kelly, too, like you said, um, who, again, his son, you know, his 29-year-old son was killed in 2010. He's a Marine. So you think that maybe that person especially, but like these guys would maybe not want to continue a forever war. And, you know, I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday, just kind of in the newsroom. I was homesick, but... In the the but virtual your, your presence looms over us. The virtual Slack newsroom, but you know, kind of trying to figure out like, well, then what is it? And, you know, and like you said, Zach, like I have theories. I don't really know, and I think one of them that we talked about is is the idea of the sunken cost fallacy, right? Which is that we've already put in so much money and so much time and so much life, right? So many lives have been lost, Afghan and American, and many other NATO countries. It's not just Americans fighting. 
there's the kind of an a question of well then what do we do this for right so you know soldiers and and marines who've watched their friends die who have been injured who've lost limbs you know who've had traumatic brain injuries if we suddenly just pull out and say, oh, the Taliban can have the country, you know, whatever, we don't care, we're over it. I don't care if, you know, women ever go to school, it's not our problem, you know, whatever. Then what did my friends die for, right? Then what did we fight for? And, and I think that's a very real feeling among some in the military, you know, whether or not that's something that you should use to base your grand foreign policy strategy is a valid question. But it's also important to say that that's a real element, that a real dynamic that that I think is important here. And, and Zach, you also, what was, so that's one theory. And I think that's spot on, but what, what's yours? I'd read a paper making a similar case to what Jen just illustrated. Um, it was by a political scientist named Mary Dudziak, and she called it the political work of the dead. And so it's not just a standard. It's a great title. Yeah. It's not, it's not just a standard sunk cost thing. It, it, it's more than that. It's a sense that there's an obligation to continue the work of people who have sacrificed and that the, there's a moral element to it. It's not just that, well, we've put all this work into it, which is the sunk cost fallacy. It's that there's something – there's a, there are obligations generated by people who sacrifice their lives. We owe it to them you. to make sure they didn't die for nothing. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of it. And I also think – there's a real sense in the military. It's connected to this, but but subtly different. That you you shouldn't give up. You should not declare defeat. That defeat is the worst possible thing that can happen to you, and that generals their their job is to come up with the with as many creative solutions to a problem as possible to keep trying to figure out a way to win. But you're told over and over again, we have to win. That's our job, right. and the. The political branches are supposed to check that. They're supposed to tell the military, okay, here are your goals, right? Now figure out a strategy to do them or say, look, this is not a problem that you can solve. We are ordering you to stop trying to solve it. But there's that level of political leadership, honestly, is not possible with this president. So you get uh, – or at least it's not likely to be exerted with this president. He's going to be persuaded by the people. There's There are tons of reports in the White House saying the last person he spoke to – usually persuades him on what the policy should be. And he's surrounded by people who really are committed to military people who are really committed to fighting in Afghanistan. I mean, that that book sounds fascinating. I mean, really, that title kind of resonates, just even think about it, as you said in a moment ago. I, I don't want to be in the position, because it's a weird one of defending Trump, except to say that he is not the only one who did not want to admit defeat, neither did George W. Bush, neither did Barack Obama. The war is not going badly suddenly. It's been going badly right. for about 12 years. So- there's a lot about Trump to criticize on this and other issues, but Barack Obama made the same mistake and similarly didn't have the courage to say the war is going badly, therefore we're leaving. George W. Bush didn't have the courage to say that. So I think as you're talking about incentives, no military person wants to admit defeat. No politician does either. Yeah. It's not it's not limited to Trump. But one thing that's kind of interesting, H.R. McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty, and when H.R. McMaster, a three-star general, was appointed to be the new national security advisor, people pointed to him as an academic, as this kind of like warrior scholar. And in his book, he talks about how in Vietnam, a major failing was the military leadership, you know, Zach, to your point from, from a minute ago, didn't tell the civilian leadership, we're losing. They didn't push back harder. And as a result, America lost the war. But there's a second part of his book that often isn't discussed, which is he notes that there's a psychological trauma to the military as an, as an institution to defeat that there's the personal cost of an individual Marine or soldier who says, my best friend got killed, which is real and human. 
But there's also the military as an institution. When it loses, it takes a long time to recover. That's kind of core to McMaster's DNA. So you've got this kind of three-headed beast that's sort of pushing us to endless war. You've got the military and the sunk cost fallacy. You know, Zach, to your point, you've got the legitimate feeling of, of a moral obligation. And then you've got the military and the generals feeling as if, one, we need to protect our institution. And then two, more selfishly, we're not going to be the generals who allow a defeat that causes trauma on a thing we've devoted our lives to serving. And it gets us to a place where this war will never end. Uh, David Rode, who is a very experienced war correspondent for Reuters, the New York Times, had a piece on thenewyorker.com. Jen, you, you'd flagged it. I'm, I'm glad you did. There were two things in it I just wanted to read very briefly because they were really striking. So we always focus on American dead. I mean, that's, it drives a lot of crazy. I mean, Jen, I, I know it really resonates with you on a personal level. And these are the numbers which really matter. So, so far this year, there have been 14 American troops killed, 14. For the families, it's obviously an infinite loss, but, but 14. For Afghan soldiers, policemen, the Afghans who are fighting the Taliban, it's 31 dying per day, per day. And so far for the Afghan civilian population last year, you had 3,500 civilians killed. So we're talking about this war that not only will never end, but we're talking about a war where the human cost just goes on and on and on. And David had a phrase that I think is really resonant. And he, he's talking about basically that this is a continuation of an endless halfway war, which is spot on, because we're not going to do enough that might lead to victory. I'm not sure there is anything to do that would lead to victory. And we're just going to kind of stumble forward. We're just going to keep going on a little bit here and a little bit there, hope something changes when nothing will. And it's it's just so profoundly depressing because why? You know, why waste the people? Why waste the money? Why? Why are we doing this? Well, to your point from earlier, it probably will get worse if and when the U.S. withdraws. I hate saying if when it comes to a war, but if and when we leave, the Taliban is likely to make gains. More Afghan civilians are likely to die and be put under horrible rule. Like, the U.S. isn't the only reason this war keeps going. Right? Right. It keeps going for domestic Afghan reasons and in part – Pakistan's reasons. Yeah, that, um, that's a big part. Yeah, <laughs> to be fair. And and so there are all these. There's the central government. There are warlords whose allegiances shift and are mostly to themselves. And then there's the Taliban. And there's Al Qaeda, which has made a resurgence inside the Taliban. So it's it's a complex conflict, and not one that that only continues because of U.S. intervention. Uh, and and that means no one wants to own what Afghanistan looks like after the U.S. leaves because it'll be ugly. It may not be, and, and my bet would be that it's not just an immediate Taliban takeover. Uh, but whatever it is, it'll be violent, it'll be messy, and it'll be home to terrorists. And, you know, Jen, you, you'd mentioned before Pakistan. And I think before we leave the segment, let's talk about Pakistan. I mean, you, you flagged it. So why? why? Why does it matter to you? And why should it matter, I think, to people listening? Yeah. So in, in Trump's uh, speech on, uh, I guess, Monday, he, he specifically called out Pakistan. We have been paying Pakistan billions and billions of dollars. At the same time, they are housing the very terrorists that we are fighting. But that will have to change, and that will change immediately. Basically, there's this kind of area on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan that's a federally administrated tribal area. It's called Fatah uh, for short. But it's basically a somewhat lawless kind of region. And the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban, which are two different groups, but they're linked, operate across the border kind of squishily. And we really would like Pakistan. And we've, George W. Bush tried this, Obama tried this, and now Trump is trying this, trying to get Pakistan to stop looking the other way slash 
kind of maybe supporting some of these groups that are fighting the Americans. And Pakistan does a lot of counterterrorism work. Um, The problem is that the terrorists that they're killing and arresting are not necessarily the ones we want them to kill and arrest because they have kind of incentives to keep certain groups that want to maybe fight against some of Pakistan's enemies, right? So Pakistan basically wants to get rid of the terrorists that are fighting the Pakistani government, which they're all well and good and and happy to do that. But when it comes to groups who maybe also might push back against India for some things, you know, they're kind of mortal enemy or, you know, has different kind of like the Afghan Taliban, the the Haqqani network, which is a kind of group of al-Qaeda sort of affiliated, but not al-Qaeda militants uh, who have fought against the U.S. troops there and the Afghan National Security Forces. So basically, we really want Pakistan to stop doing a lot of this stuff. And we want them to be tougher on counterterrorism on the groups that we really want them to stop helping and supporting, right? So remember Osama bin Laden, when he was finally killed, was living in Pakistan really close right down the street from basically their version of West Point. Um, So, you know, those kind of things we really don't like. And the problem is that we have really not a lot of leverage to get Pakistan to stop doing that. Yeah. Anyway, so so Pakistan is an important player here, um, is the long story short. And Trump has kind of tried to lay down the law, if you will, and get Pakistan to kind of play ball. And good luck with that. Um, it's something that, you know, George W. Bush and Obama both tried and it didn't work. And there are lots of reasons for that. But basically, it's a really important player that really helps keep Afghanistan really unstable that we can't really control. And, and I think just as, as we close the segment, because oftentimes life tragically is sadder than and harder to imagine than satire. But The Onion has this exactly right, as this often does. They kind of groundhog day element to all of this. They had a, a piece that went up right after the Trump speech soldier excited to take over father's old Afghanistan patrol route, which is really, really painful, but also really, really funny, and then really painful again. Uh, Someone in the newsroom pointed out that by next year, you will have soldiers and Marines fighting in Afghanistan who were born after 9-11, after the war started, which is mind-boggling. So if you're hiring, it's hard. And trying to figure out where you find the best talent, how you make sure that those people will fit the culture and the business you have, it isn't easy. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else's does. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in 24 hours. So that means no juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and match candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And as of right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com worldly, ZipRecruiter.com worldly. And one more time, in case you're trying to hire someone and they're not listening to it the way they should, one more time, it is ZipRecruiter.com worldly. 
Hello, worldly listeners. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm the host of Recode Media. If you like this show, I think you will like the one I do as well. Every Thursday, we post interesting conversations with people like the New York Times, Dean Bacay, comedian W. Kamau Bell, and investor Jason Calacanis. I even talked to Glenn Beck in the middle of a noisy bar during South by Southwest, which was experience. The name of the show is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and you can find it wherever you found this show. We will see you there. We're going to pivot now to Elsewhere, and this is going to be possibly our favorite Elsewhere segment of all time because we get to use the phrase Cuban sonic weapon. It is an amazingly awesome story. Jen is limbering up her fingers because yesterday when we were talking about this, even though she was sick on her deathbed, she was raring to go to so talk excited. about sonic weapon. We're going to hear a clip from CBS describing what actually happened in Havana. Americans and Canadians working in Havana at their embassies were possibly exposed to a type of sonic device attack uh, directed at their homes provided by the Cuban government. Jen? So yeah, so this is this bizarre story that broke earlier this month and is kind of been trickling out. It, it's kind of been lost in the shuffle of bigger stories. Uh, so essentially, a group of American diplomats have suffered severe and unexplained hearing loss, nausea, and mild traumatic brain injury over the past year. And U.S. officials believe this was caused by a clandestine sonic device or a, an acoustic weapon that maybe the Cubans, because it was in Cuba, basically pointed at the diplomats' houses. So it wasn't actually at the embassy. It was at their houses. And the Cuban government provides these houses for the diplomats and based on international law and longstanding custom, you know, countries are responsible for protecting foreign diplomats on their soil. So that's kind of where this issue comes in. And it's just insane, right? It's just this bizarre, my first immediate thought was this sounds like crazy Cold War spy versus spy stuff, right? You know, pointing like sonic death lasers at each other okay, to like listen, I, I, I right? Want, I want to pause here for a second, right? There's two things. First, like it's easy to get really excited about like the crazy title, but like real people got hurt. Yeah, right? it's, they have some permanent hearing loss. Yeah, and, and brain damage, right? In the most recent report, and like that's not, it's not great. Part one and part two, we don't actually know that this was a weapon, right? Like I read a piece this morning. Right from a CIA operative, a veteran of many, many years who was in Russia. And he said what happened, he's, his name's John Cipher, and it's on the website Just Security. And what he Cipher wrote in his piece is that when he was in Russia, the Russians would do all sorts of crazy things to try to spy on and track U.S. operatives in their country. Like right. they would dust their door handles with radioactive material that they could then track once it got on their hands, right? And dust. Some of this stuff was supposed to be or, or might have been carcinogenic, and people were really worried about that. And the point that he was trying to make by referencing this, which is the thing that happened in his own experience, is that it wasn't the Russians were trying to poison these people. It's that they were trying to spy on them. Right. And so if the Cubans really were directing what I believe are ultrasonic Sounds. So that's what the theory is that it's ultrasonic, not subsonic, um, which meaning above the range of hearing rather than Maybe. below it. It's there's dispute over this. <laughs> right. Scientists. And I actually want to get into that. Um, I, either way, yeah. 
if they were doing that, it was not necessarily as a weapon in the sense that they were trying to do some right. kind of weird damage to these people. So they were trying to spy on them yeah. and it ended up actually hurting people. Right. Yeah. Um, I think we're using the word attack because Rex Tillerson literally called them health attacks, which is just, I don't know. I feel like that's the name of like a new uh, smoothie. Mr. Charisma. Mr. You're Charisma. Both stealing my phrase. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get like, you both. get like a health attack boost at Jamba Juice. But so when we talk about like, was this a sonic weapon or an acoustic weapon? It, it's really bizarre. So they're kind of like, there's a whole nother issue there. So we don't even really know what the hell happened. Because if you talk to experts, and I speed read a book on sonic weaponry last night by uh, Steve Goodman. Uh, it's a 2012 book, MIT Press. Of course you did. Because of course I did. But it actually talks about how we've used kind of sound in in warfare more generally. Traditionally, like when we use, when we think about like sonic weapons, we we think about, uh, you know, like crowd dispersal, right? Really loud noises to get people, you know, sounds that are annoying and harsh to get people to disperse. Um, that's very different than what we're talking about here. So these weren't audible, right? Like they didn't seem to hear anything, which means they were either infrasonic, like you said, below, below the, the range of human hearing, or ultrasonic, meaning above the, the range of human hearing. And both of those are really confusing because neither of those necessarily make any sense either. So in terms of whether they could be weapons. So for, for ultrasonic, you need to have a direct line to the target, which means like if they're trying to basically spy, like you said, using ultrasonic, they need to not have walls kind of in the way, and you need to be pretty close to the target, which seems like it would be kind of hard to do, right? Clandestinely, without being seen, and also through walls of someone's house. So experts are like, well, that is kind of confusing. That doesn't really make sense. I mean, maybe they could do it, but we don't really know of any technology that's really that good at doing that. Or it could be infrasonic, which is possible, but it would require large, like multiple, multiple subwoofers, like massive speakers, which again, is not super subtle. So experts are actually stumped on what this could even be, even if it were a spying device. Like, but they still don't even know. And it's just bizarre trying to figure this out. But there's real, like you said, Zach, I, I don't mean to, it, it's a bizarre story, but you're absolutely right. And there are real people who were, who were harmed um, by this. But like, we don't even know. The State Department doesn't even know. Cuba has said like these, you know, allegations are baseless, but they said that they have launched an, quote, exhaustive, high-priority, urgent investigation at the behest of the highest level of the Cuban government. So they're like, yeah, no, we're looking into it because we realize you guys are kind of mad and this is kind of our responsibility. I think that's also because there's a second element beyond, and, you know, Zach, I'm glad you made Jen and I both accurately feel like terrible people because you're right, these are American diplomats serving in, in what is still a dangerous place who are who are suffering. And you apparently are, some Canadian diplomats also. So I'm, I'm glad you, you are bad that. and should feel bad. Mission accomplished. Evergreen. But th- there is also a kind of separate, very serious question here, which is why? Right. So if we presume for the moment that some part of the Cuban government, and one of the theories is that it was a rogue element of the Cuban military, a hard line element, a rogue element of the Cuban intelligence services. So let's for the moment presume that Cuba was in some way involved in doing this. Why? I mean, right now, if you are the Cuban government, what you've wanted for decades is the world to recognize you, especially the United States, and foreign money, because your country is falling apart and needs investment. Under the opening President Obama made, the President Trump has talked about closing, but hasn't. You've got billions of dollars flowing into the Cuban tourism industry, hotels being built. You have Cuba getting that, and you have Cuba 
having an American embassy in the first place. So they've gotten the recognition and they've gotten the money. Trump desperately would love to have an excuse to cut all of that. We know that. Trump has said that. Until he can so, build a Trump hotel in Havana. But so why? I mean, it comes back to the question of why. So I have, and again, there are a lot of assumptions we're making here, but just based on the terms that you, that you laid out, I have, I think it's actually partly because of the fact that, like you said, there's been this opening to Cuba under Obama, and then Trump would very much like to reverse that. So the period that we're talking about here, where these symptoms were experienced by these people, is mid-November 2016 to a little bit earlier this year. So what happened then is you had Trump elected. You had a handover of power to someone who would like to completely reverse something that has been really positive for the Cuban and the U.S. economy. So I'm just spitballing here. But if you wanted to spy on diplomats to see, holy shit, what are they saying? Are, are we really, is this going to happen? Are they going to turn this over? You know, are they going to overturn this, this Obama kind of opening to Cuba? Are we going to really do this? It might make sense to point some super secret, fancy clandestine weapons at the diplomats' houses and see like, well, you know, we don't have a ton of high-level contacts, but maybe we could see if they're talking about it at home and listen in and see if we can get some kind of intelligence. Because this is one of the biggest policy changes that happened in U.S.-Cuba relations for decades. And it's been a big deal. And if Trump is suddenly coming in, the time period there just makes sense, right? Like, holy shit, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, even people who were studying this didn't know, you know, what's going to happen with Trump. Is he or isn't he? You know, is he going to or is he not? And if, you know, if, if experts are doing that, you better believe the Cuban government is worried about trying to figure that out. So, one way to get that information would ostensibly be to point some super fancy sonic death weapon, <laughs> which is if officially its name. I don't care if it's a weapon or not. And try to get that information. It's just one theory. I don't know why they couldn't have just, like, bugged a clock and put it in their house like, you know, we used to do during the Cold War. Like, get a little statue and put a little bug in it. I don't know why they have to, like, point a death ray at them, but, you know. This is exactly why I don't buy that it was any kind of attack. Right. But it does not make any sense. Like, when you heard right. the diplomatic— First of all, you're not— International law says you're not allowed to target diplomats. Right. Right. So for harm. Second, right. you are allowed to listen to them. Yeah, you're allowed to spy on them. Because everyone's them, going to. Right. So yeah. that's one. Yeah. Totally. Two, when you use force in your a country against uh, representatives of another country, you're trying to communicate something to that other country. Right. You're trying to send them a message, or you're trying to kill somebody who could potentially hurt you. There's no indication that they were trying to kill these people. If they were, it was radically inefficient. And the Cuban government's not that stupid, right? But it makes much more sense if it's the scenario that Jen is outlining, which is that this was an attempt to, to spy on the U.S. embassy and that they didn't – they had maybe tried the other stuff and they weren't getting the information they wanted, the traditional stuff. And the U.S. has done plenty of harebrained things in Cuba in attempts <laughs> to get information or even kill Castro. Exploding cigars. Right. So <laughs> Thank it, you. It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that the Cuban government tried something harebrained to get intelligence from the United States. That maybe went a little south. Yeah, and so they ended up probably not hearing very much. It doesn't, I, I don't know how this weapon or spy device worked, but. Right. Uh, Clearly they don't yeah. really either, apparently. I don't know, but they, they definitely unintentionally hurt some people, would be my guess. Right. Based on this scenario and have created a diplomatic flashpoint that really did not need to exist yeah. at a time when they probably didn't want a diplomatic flashpoint. Which got, yeah, and I, I think, I agree. I think Jen's theory makes the most sense. And Zach, I'm glad you amplify it. And then it gets, in some ways, back to the question we, we ended the previous segment with of what comes next. 
right? Trump has talked about cutting ties with Cuba. He's talked about reinstating sanctions that Obama lifted, make it harder to travel there. Things kind of backed away from it as, as Trump is, is wont to do. And so the question is, is there fallout from this? I mean, you have the, the actual diplomats who are suffering. And again, I feel terrible guilt now that I was joking about it before. So, you know, thanks for that. Um, but then you also have the question of, does this give Trump an excuse to do it? Does he act on it or does he just let it go? So far, weirdly, with the exception of Mr. Charisma, Rex Tillerson, that phrase is mine, both of you back off, saying it's a health attack. There's been nothing else. No, we actually, there has actually, um, because this thing has kind of gone under the radar. I didn't even notice this with just, this is something that would have like made massive headlines previously, but we actually expelled two Cuban diplomats from their embassy in Washington on May 23rd. State Department expelled two, like that's a big deal in terms of diplomacy. Like you hurt our diplomats or we suspect that you didn't do a good enough job not hurting them, you know, whatever it is. Again, they haven't, the U.S. government hasn't officially said Cuba attacked us in any way. They're saying, we don't know what happened, but this is kind of crazy. And Cuba, you didn't do a great job at this. And we don't really know what's going on. So they kicked out two Cuban diplomats. So they did do that. Again, I think it's bizarre that this isn't something that took, you know, made massive headlines because in the past, like kicking out Cuban diplomats would be kind of a big deal. But kind of beyond that, I think it's we're in just kind of like a holding pattern in terms of like they're trying to figure out. So they had doctors fly down there to kind of reevaluate some uh, some of the people because some people are still there in Cuba. Some of the diplomats, some were so severely um, affected that they had to end their tours uh, and, and come home for treatment. I do want to say just because I, I want to share this with the world. If you guys have never been to the International Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C., oh my God, you should go. There are, of course, really important monuments and things that you should see in Washington, D.C., but it is my absolute favorite in terms of interest and entertainment to go. You can check out all the really cool, like, it's a private thing. I don't, like, have an investment in them. I'm not, like, shilling for them here. Um, but you can check out, like, really cool spy stuff that's, like, either, you know, replicas or whatever. We're talking, like, lipstick guns and, like, all the cool spy versus spy stuff. When Zach was talking about all the zany things that we tried during the Cold War to, like, spy on each other, we tried some zany things, including, at one point, the Russian, some, like, Russian-Soviet children's group presented the U.S. ambassador to Russia with a giant plaque of, like, thank you that was completely bugged and hung in the ambassador's office for, like, years, apparently. They were just listening to literally everything inside the ambassador's office, and we didn't know. So, yeah, check out International Spy Museum. It's really cool, and maybe someday we will have an entry there on the Cuba sonic attack ray. So if you want to know more about this both bizarre, fascinating, and in the case of Zach, now guilt-inducing story, uh, we will have a great piece posting on it on Vox.com either later today or tomorrow morning. So if you want to find out more, please check it there. As always, if you like what you're hearing, we hope you do. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there, Stitcher, SoundCloud, on Google. Come find us, worldly at Vox.com. If you want to suggest segments, if you want to let us know that you like us, we hope you do, or you don't like us, we hope you don't. But If you want to criticize do, how much I say like... Or um, or if you don't like something Zach says, everything I say obviously is perfect. Come find us sure. on email. Sure, guy. Come, uh, come rate and review. Come subscribe. Come listen. We will look forward to hearing you all next week. We want to thank our producers, Jillian Weinberger, Ria Chawi. Wait, I want to close on one other note, which is I want to say happy birthday to Worldly's biggest fan, Mateo Gurria, who's also my nephew, who turns oh. 12 next week. Happy birthday, Mateo. Happy birthday, Mateo. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.